following episode was pre-recorded before Ron DeSantis ended his campaign. This is The Josh Hammer Show. Less than one weekend, the Republican presidential primary is over. Yes, it really did happen that quickly. Look, you guys know me. You know that I have been a big supporter all along of the governor of my state, the state of Florida, Ron DeSantis. His campaign simply didn't cut it. Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee in the year 2024. There is no getting around that unavoidable, inescapable conclusion. Whether your name is Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, or anyone else at this point, and you are still competing, look, that is your prerogative. You have raised the money. If you want to go probably get defeated in New Hampshire, South Carolina, and on to the next state at this point, that's fine. I'm not going to tell you right now what you should do. You run your own operation. But you're just prolonging the inevitable at this point. There is no other way of discerning what happened in Iowa on Monday evening. Ron DeSantis got the endorsement of the popular governor there, Kim Reynolds, got the endorsement of the most important evangelical leader in the state, Bob Vanderplatz, pulled off the so-called full Grassley, visiting all 99 counties there in the Hawkeye state, all for finishing roughly 30 points behind Trump, barely squeaking out second place over Nikki Haley, not even winning a single county. This is tough. I like Ron DeSantis. You guys know that. But you got to know when to fold him. Anyone who's ever played a hand of poker in their life, you know that. There's no point in being reckless at this point. Moreover, as a Floridian, Governor DeSantis, we are now starting a very important legislative session. Perhaps it is time to give up national aspirations at this particular juncture on the national stage and come home to Tallahassee and lead the people of Florida through another stalwart legislative session, the likes of which you just did last year and the year before that. Donald Trump is the nominee, and there is simply no point in pretending like he is not the nominee. Now, many of my concerns about Trump as a nominee Still stand. It's not like I renounce everything that I said. He is, by definition, limited to one term. He already served the term. He can only be president now for one term. He has any number of baggage when it comes to the illegitimate Democratic lawfare against him from Attorney General Merrick Garland, Special Counsel Jack Smith. You know the Democrats, what Andrew Breitbart called the Democrat media complex. You know that they are going to carpet bomb the airwaves with all sorts of of visuals about January 6th. Oh, the insurrection. They're going to try to terrify suburban moms. You know that is coming. And I do worry about the possible down-ballot ramifications as it pertains to Republicans' attempt to recapture the Senate in what is a normally, what should be a very favorable Senate map, as well as maintaining that slim House majority. I definitely have concerns about that given all the money that it is going to take from the RNC and the Trump campaign to get Trump across the finish line. But he can do it. He can absolutely do it. And at this point, 
I have to say, I have no clue what the folks who are clearly telling DeSantis and Haley to prolong this, I have no clue what they are thinking. I see these tweets. I see these articles out there. I, I see the press releases. I, I'm sorry, but like, what planet are you living on? Again, I really like Ron DeSantis. And for that reason, I feel an overriding urge to say as explicitly as possible, for your own sake, Governor DeSantis, the time is now to come home to Tallahassee, recoup your political capital, and do what you do best, which is govern this state where I live, the nation's third largest state, in superb fashion, delivering lots and lots of victories for the forces of civilizational sanity and punishing the forces of civilizational arson. The fact that it did not work out on the national stage has no tangible ramifications, or shouldn't at least, for your ability to govern this state the way that you have for the past few years. In retrospect, it probably was not possible. It probably was not structurally possible to defeat Donald Trump this cycle. There was a lot of debating at the end of 2022 after the midterms. A lot of the so-called Trump picks for the midterm races that year, folks like Carrie Lake in Arizona, Herschel Walker in Georgia, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, a lot of those picks came up short. And a lot of people thought that Trump was really hurting at that time. In fact, DeSantis was not yet an officially declared nominee, but at that time, after the midterms, a lot of the polls showed DeSantis ahead of Trump both nationally and in many of the swing states, the key states for that matter. I remember a poll, again, he was not even a candidate yet, but I remember a hypothetical poll in the state of Florida right here that showed DeSantis up 20 points on Trump in December 2022. I remember a poll out of Texas where he was up on Trump. There was a lot of polling at that time. But you had to understand that as the cycle and the primary got underway in earnest, and this perhaps is what some of us did not properly foresee at that time. The engines of conservative media, which so, so much at this point in the year 2023, 2024, depend on Trump, depend on Mar-a-Lago, depend on that whole orbit. You had to understand that they were going to come home to Donald Trump. Some of us didn't want to believe it, but it certainly ended up being true. Moreover, of course, you have the overt politicization of Alvin Bragg, Fonnie Willis, and special counsel Jack Smith. Yes, the indictments made a huge, huge difference. Ron DeSantis even admitted it as much in an interview a few weeks ago where he kind of let the cat out of the bag and lamented the fact that the indictments totally turned upside down this primary election cycle. That itself was somewhat of a concession. But again, at the end of the day, when you have the endorsement in Iowa of the very popular governor, the most important grassroots Christian leader, the most important broadcaster, our pal Steve Davis has been on this show before. When you have the endorsements of all of that and you still cannot win a single county and come up 30 points behind, there is no shame at that point in bowing out. There really is not. The party is very divided right now. Conservatives are incredibly divided, not just ideologically, but certainly as pertains 
to Donald Trump himself. To Trump's credit, he had a remarkably gracious, a, a dare I say, very un-Trump-like gracious victory speech in Iowa on Monday evening. I took that as something of a peace pipe offered to his fellow candidates, to his rivals in the primary. I have noticed many of his online surrogates, his Twitter keyboard warriors who, shall we say, are not following that lead. They are continuing to be vicious and slinging lots of ad hominem vitriol at some of us who preferred DeSantis. That has to stop. The time for unity is now. It is old hat to say that this is the most important presidential election of our lifetime, but the reality is every four years, as the republic gets further and further away from what we once were, the stakes by definition do get higher and higher. This is absolutely a monumental presidential election. And I, for one, yes, I preferred a different candidate. That candidate's not going to make it. There is no shame in that. And I very much look forward to voting for Donald Trump for president this fall. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Donald Trump, as we just stipulated, is going to be the Republican nominee for president this cycle. That is going to set up a rematch that the American people simultaneously say they don't want, but yet they have voted for it. A rematch of the 2020 presidential election between two people who are either just under the age of 80 or just over the age of 80. That is Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. Trump can win this. You know, about a year ago or so, One of the arguments that I made for Ron DeSantis, one of the arguments that I heard others make on behalf of DeSantis or or Haley or Pence, Tim Scott, whoever was in at that time, was that Trump simply could not do it. A lot of us at that time just were looking at the polls, were looking at Trump's very weak standing after the 2022 midterms where he really botched a lot of his picks and this and that. And we said, you know what? This is a really important election. We need someone who has a much better chance of defeating Joe Biden in 2024. And to an extent, that stands. If you look at the polling right now, it's actually true. You do see 
that of the three Republican candidates who nominally, at least at this point, remain in the race, Trump, DeSantis and Haley, they, they usually show Nikki Haley beating Joe Biden by a wide enough margin. But if you are being honest with yourself, you have to concede, no matter how anti-Trump you might be, whether you're a Democrat, Republican, independent or whatever, you have to concede that Donald Trump can absolutely at this point win this thing. He is ahead by one and a half to two points or so in the real clear politics average. That is the golden average that basically summarizes all the relevant polls there. Joe Biden can barely stand on his own two feet, guys. And there are a lot of folks out there who are saying, oh, the Democrats are obviously going to substitute him at the, at the last minute. I, I have always been skeptical of that, and I continue to be skeptical of that. First of all, the ballot deadlines for virtually all of these states at this point have passed. So you're not going to do it in the primary. The only way to do it would be one of two things. You could find a way, some way, somehow, to convince the delegates at the Democratic National Convention to nominate someone else. You could whip up the votes there on the floor of the actual convention. Or, you know, you could pull a Jeffrey Epstein if you're Hillary Clinton or someone in the Clinton crime family and tried to make Joe Biden mysteriously fall down a flight of stairs sometime in August or September or October just before the election. I don't particularly like the odds of either of those two things happening. So I am operating under the presumption here that Joe Biden is going to be the nominee. And he is the nominee while he is facing tremendous, tremendous headwinds. His son, first of all, is facing numerous federal prosecutions. He is being prosecuted on both tax and crime charges. Biden himself continues, continues to face a public that views his handling of the economy, foreign policy, immigration, crime, virtually every issue in the world. The public says that they are not satisfied with how Joe Biden is is handling it. And how could you be? The world is on fire. China is marching into the Philippines. They're probably going to march into Taiwan in the next few years. The Middle East has really not been more in flames like this who knows, 15, 20, 25 years. It's been a long time. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the show here. The economy, you know, they tried the whole Bidenomics thing. When they started to slowly roll out the Biden campaign at the start of the NFL season this past September, they had that national advertisement, if you recall, talking about the the virtues of Bionomics or the benefits, the positives, the virtues of Bionomics. Well, that went over like a lead balloon. The people have not responded to that favorably at all. For a time there, Biden was yelling at his advisors, basically saying, oh, my God, why is the Bionomics message not sticking? Well, it's not sticking, Mr. President, because the economy continues to not do well. And the working and middle class continue to lag behind what they should be. So all of this raises the obvious questions then. What kind of campaign in the general election, especially given the fact that he is facing four criminal prosecutions, 91 criminal accounts to say nothing of various other civil lawsuits, such as his defamation lawsuit involving E. Jean Carroll, what kind of campaign is Donald Trump going to have to run? And if you ask me, I think that his best bet is to run on the most boring standard issues imaginable, which is competence on the world stage and focusing on immigration, crime, and the economy at home. The the reason that voters, the reason that so many voters on both the left and the center-right are so utterly terrified of Donald Trump is because they view him as an agent of chaos. They view him as someone who is just sowing the seeds 
of utter destruction and devastation the world ever. They associate him with January 6th, the so-called insurrection, all of that. The best way to push back against that is to exude confidence and to remind the voters, frankly, that the four years of Donald Trump's presidency were actually a remarkably stable four years on the world stage. Vladimir Putin was not marching into Ukraine when Donald Trump was president. Xi Jinping was not saber-rattling in India, Philippines, Taiwan, you name it, Southeast China Seas, or at least wasn't doing as often when Donald Trump was president. Hamas was not committing Nazi-esque pogroms in Israel when Donald Trump was president. The situation in Yemen with the Houthis was relatively contained. I could go on and on and on. On the home front, moreover, when Donald Trump was president, the economy, at least for the first three years before the COVID pandemic, was absolutely exceptional. The unemployment rate was in the mid 3% around 2019. The black unemployment rate reached its lowest ever statistic in the history of that statistic, going back to the 1960s, I think, per Gallup and, and Pew. So avoid the so-called hot-button culture war issues because the Democrats are going to carpet bomb those airwaves with all this footage of January 6th. Oh, he's done this to women. Oh, he's being criminally prosecuted. Oh, he could die behind bars. So reassure them that it's actually the other guy who is bringing in illegal aliens from so many national backgrounds that we have no idea who is fomenting crime in the streets, who has overseen a prolific increase in violent crime, especially over the first two years of his presidency, that would be Joe Biden, and then talk about the economy itself. Bread and butter economic issues. What are you going to do, Mr. Trump, to increase real inflation-adjusted wages for the working and middle class in this country? What are you going to do to continue your righteous reorientation of America's trade policy that you started during your first term as president, especially as it pertains to reshoring critical supply chains from the Chinese Communist Party and various other American geopolitical adversaries. Talk about the issues that really matter and affect the day-to-day life of the American voter. I speak from personal experience here. Not everyone in my family is, like myself, a a rock-ribbed, right winger. I have plenty of moderates. I even have plenty of Democratic relatives in my family. Heck, my parents are probably best described as as Clinton era Democrats. They're not going to vote for Biden this time around for sure. But if you really want to win over voters like my parents, focus on the border, focus on crime. And yes, the economy, these basic, basic quality of life issues. That is by far the most effective way to push back against the absolute tsunami, the absolute onslaught of coast-to-coast media coverage that is going to come as soon as Donald Trump is confirmed as the official nominee. He's the unofficial nominee as of now. He relatively soon will presumptively be the official nominee. And as soon as that happens, CNN, MSNBC, The New York Times, Washington Post, you name it, they are going to be flooding Flooding your television, flooding your internet feed, flooding your newspapers with all sorts of fear mongering about, oh, Trump is Putin's best friend because we all know they can't let the Russiagate crap from 2016 go. Oh, January 6th, he's, he's a dictator. He's a fascist. Again, focus on what you actually did in your one term as president, Mr. Trump. Focus on how you handle the economy. Focus on how the world stage 
was relatively calm. Focus on how your foreign policy is oriented towards reassuring your allies and harming your enemies and not the other way around, as is so often the case in this Obama-Biden era of Democratic Party morally inverse foreign policy. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. You might have heard me talking about this, but I got back just over a week ago now from a week-long trip to Israel. We've discussed the situation in the Middle East a lot on this show since the Hamas Holocaust of October 7th. I knew after that happened that I had to get over there. It was just a matter of time. And I was supposed to go in November. It got delayed and finally made it over there earlier this month. And it was it was a jam-packed week. It was an utterly hectic, chaotic week, but I wouldn't have had it any other way. We were primarily based in, in Jerusalem, the capital, but we really kind of went all over. We spent some time in Tel Aviv. We went to Hostage Square there in Tel Aviv, which is exactly what it sounds like. It is this big square smack in the middle of the city where there was a huge Shabbat dinner table, a huge table filled with 240 roughly empty chairs, one chair for all of the hostages that were taken by Hamas on October 7th. And they have plates and they have glasses. It's really, it's really quite a beautiful sight. I, I was speaking with one of the, of the locals there, and apparently when, when it rains or there was a storm or any of the plates or napkins or silverware on this immaculately set Shabbat dinner table, apparently whenever something like that happens, someone immediately, I was told, comes out of their apartment nearby to clean up and put it back to its original state. So they're taking real good care of that. Lots of singing and dancing and camaraderie there. And that really was kind of the theme of my trip overall was, yes, we saw the devastation. We saw the carnage firsthand. No doubt about that. We, we went down south to Ofakim, Starot, Kafar Aza, and Raim. All four of those were, were sites of horrible battles between Hamas and Israeli civilians on October 7th. In Ofakim, we got a tour around the city from one of the heroes of October 7th, a, a police captain by the name of Edemar, who single-handedly saved dozens, probably, of lives on that day. He was telling us, oh, here's where they were shooting at me. Here's where I shot back. Just a remarkable, remarkable hero. He saved the life of his rabbi. He showed us where he stopped the bleeding. Just incredible stuff. Kafar Aza and Raim were 
really, really difficult. Kfaraza is, is a kibbutz. It's a tiny village right there up against the fence with Gaza, literally on the fence with Gaza, just utterly massacred. There, there's simply no other way to say it. I mean, these are, these are th- sites that I'm not going to be able to get out of my mind for a very long time. I mean, seeing these buildings in bombed out fashion, the sofas, the kitchen utensils, the, the children's toys, for God's sake, just strewn, littered all about the streets. And what the IDF, the military, has done is they've put up signs there when you walk by saying, this person was killed by Hamas in this house, or this person was taken hostage by Hamas from this house. So you really put these faces and names to the story that you've heard, to the graphics that you've seen on cable news, just heart-wrenching stuff, equally so in Raim, which was the nearby site of the Nova Music Festival, where the Hamas paragliders flew in indiscriminately trying to gun down people, raping, pillaging what they saw, hundreds murdered, many, many more taken hostage. And, you know, walking across that field, the killing field of Raim, Israel, that's really what it is. It's, it's a killing field. You see a stake in the ground, a physical stake for each and every one of the lives that was taken and or taken hostage. And there were, there were pictures. There were candles and flowers for most of them from loved ones, friends, mourning those who were murdered. And then there were pictures. And that was one of the most emotionally searing parts of the whole trip for me was because this was a music festival. The folks looking at you from the grave there via these photos on these stakes in this very stake-littered field, these are young people. These are young, beautiful human beings who had a lot to live for. And by the way, they were not just Israelis. I'm not a huge rave goer. I know that might shock you, but Apparently, this is a well-known rave where tons of people fly into this from all sorts of European countries, maybe throughout the Middle East as well. So it was not just Israeli names that were staring back at me there from beyond the grave. Really just awful, awful stuff. But more than that, what I took away from being down there was the unshakable spirit of the Israeli civilians and soldiers alike who I saw there. So right there in Kafar Aza and in Raim, this kibbutz that was slaughtered and this killing field where they had the music festival, there was lots of spontaneous singing and dancing and hugging. Right there in Kafar Aza, there were these two or three Haredi Jews, so religious Jews, who were singing with guitars, just trying to power through. And then you had a lot of soldiers there from the military that joined them. And we were all linking arms, we're all fighting back tears. You know, in many ways, it is that spirit, that zest for life, that yearning for life, that faith in God, that he is a just and merciful God, no matter what horrible tragedies may afflict us on a daily basis, he is ultimately just and merciful. It is all of that that really has allowed the Jewish people to survive throughout all the ups and downs for thousands of years. I'm Yisrael Chai, the, the, the people of Israel live. It is that word, live and life, that I'm going to take most away from this trip. Another thing that I'm going to take away from this trip is how inadequately the Western media and American media are portraying what is happening in the Israeli north when it comes to Lebanon and Hezbollah. 
So everyone's talking about what's happening in Gaza for very good reasons. That is where the war is currently primarily being prosecuted. The IDF currently has operational control over northern Gaza. The rockets that are flying into southern Israel still crazy to believe, but really still are coming from central and southern Gaza. And there is a lot, lot of work left to be done in Khan Yunus, which is the second largest city there in Gaza. It is a Hamas stronghold. It is where Israeli intelligence believes that Yahweh Sinwar, who is the Hamas head in Gaza, that is where they believe he is held. They also believe most of the hostages are in the subterranean terror tunnel network there around Khan Yunus as well. But up north on the Israel-Lebanon border, the situation is a heck of a lot worse than I think even I realized. This was a recurring theme. It was a late motif of my conversations there with lawmakers. We spent a half day in the Knesset, their parliament. I, I spoke at a conference speaking with journalists, media figures, intellectuals, leaders. So this was a recurring theme of pretty much all of my conversations was don't just look at Gaza, but look up north. There are approximately 100,000 Israelis who have been displaced from their homes since October 7th, just up north. I'm not even talking about down south in the Gaza envelope. Most, most of those folks have been able to return home. Not all of them, but a lot of them, especially in the larger towns down there, have. That is not true up north. Hezbollah, which is a direct Iranian regime proxy, it is one of Iran's forward operating proxy terrorist organizations, not just in the Middle East, but all throughout Europe and all throughout the Americas. Hezbollah is a sprawling global enterprise. They are very close with many of the leading Mexican drug cartels, actually, just south of our own border. They help traffic a lot of the Chinese manufactured fentanyl and other synthetic drugs across our border. Hezbollah is an evil, evil organization. And because they are directly funded and provided weapons by Iran, they have been able to acquire a staggering arsenal over the past 10, 15 years. After Israel withdrew from Lebanon in the second Lebanon war in 2006, the United Nations passed a nominal resolution declaring that Lebanon could not go further south of the Latani River, which is a river there in south central Lebanon. They've done exactly that. And the United Nations, as no one should be surprised by, has done absolutely nothing to enforce that. And because of this, you still have rockets and they have Israelis estimate they have approximately 100,000 Iranian provided precision guided missiles. You still have rockets raining in on the folks in northern Israel. In fact, just this past Sunday, a week ago or so, you had a mother and son who were sipping coffee, eating breakfast in the confines of their own home in northern Israel. And they were just tragically killed by a, by a Hezbollah rocket. So the folks that I spoke with there really we're talking about how now has to be the time for war with Hezbollah. And no one wants war with Hezbollah. That will entail, tragically, God forbid, it will almost assuredly entail many more casualties than a war with Hamas, which, comparatively speaking, is a much, much less sophisticated terrorist organization. But when you have 100,000 people who are removed from their homes, when you have no other enforcement mechanism that is going to ensure that this Iranian proxy terrorist militia is not raining down rockets on your homes. And then you have the whole reserves, hundreds and thousands of reserves in the army mobilized to begin with. What other choice do you have? That is going to set up a massive clash with the Biden administration, of course, if that actually happens. The Biden administration is desperate, is absolutely desperate to keep this conflict as limited to Gaza as possible. Biden has repeatedly, 
repeatedly in both public and private tried to steer Prime Minister Netanyahu away from an escalated war with Hezbollah there in northern Israel and in Lebanon. That's probably going to get ugly if that clash between Israel and the Biden administration actually happens. But I have news for the Biden administration. You might wish that this thing stays to Gaza. This thing already is not staying to Gaza. The situation in Yemen with the Houthis is as bad as it has ever been. They are firing completely indiscriminately on commercial ships, on cargo ships, on United States flagships. Over this past week, we saw a drone, a drone that hit a a United States flagged vessel there on the Red Sea. You are starting to see all sorts of international shipping companies that are now telling their their cargo ships, primarily when it comes to oil and natural gas, because that is the commodity of the region. They're telling them now to all go around the southern tip of Africa, to go all the way down around Botswana and South Africa, Namibia, down there, because they it's too unsafe. You can't go through the Red Sea up to, up to the Suez Canal, through Egypt and the Sinai into the Mediterranean. It's literally too unsafe. And the United States, the UK, and some of our Arab allies have been striking back a little bit when it comes to the Houthis, but apparently has not made any of a dent in the Houthi behavior whatsoever. Now, interestingly, this past week, the Biden administration kind of, sort of, did something when it came to the Houthis. They applied a label called Specially Designated Terrorist Group to the Houthis. Now, what the Biden administration told us is that this was their way of relisting them as a terrorist organization. The Trump administration had listed the Houthis as an FTO, a State Department-recognized foreign terrorist organization. And one of the very first acts the Biden administration took when it assumed office in January 2021 was to delist the Houthis. It was all part of this ridiculously contrived and ultimately flat-out evil flirtation with the Iranian regime. That was the only reason whatsoever to delist the Houthis as a foreign terrorist organization. What they're doing now by calling it a specially designated terrorist group does not have the same effect. It does not clamp down on terror financing when it comes to them, and it's not going to lead to prosecution of those who are, who are funding them. It is just a much, much weaker move. In, in military terms, we, we would call it a CYA, a cover your you-know-what. That is what the Biden administration is currently doing when it comes to the Houthis. The point, though, is that as much as Biden may wish for this thing to wind down in the Middle East, as much as he wants to win back Muslims and Arabs in Michigan and Minnesota in this very tumultuous election year. He's facing a difficult re-election. It's not going to happen. This thing is not winding down anytime soon. This is already the longest war that Israel has ever fought in its history. The situation in Yemen, which doesn't even directly relate to Israel, shows no signs of slowing down anytime soon. This conflict is here. The Biden administration can either fight back or it can do absolutely nothing. Those are the basic options at this point. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The Josh Hammer Show. It's Hammer Time. The FAA is launching a recruitment campaign for workers with, quote, severe intellectual disabilities or psychiatric problems for purposes of fulfilling the dictates of DEI, so-called diversity, equity and conclusion. So the the FAA is stating on its website how individuals with severe mental and physical disabilities represent a, quote, underrepresented segment of the federal workforce. Well, not to state the obvious here, but do you know why they are, quote unquote, underrepresented? Probably because we don't want people with severe intellectual, mental or psychiatric maladies controlling the skies, for God's sake. That is the FAA. That is the Federal Aviation Authority. I I mean, who in their right mind thinks that this is a good idea? Are you seriously going to gamble with the lives of Passengers, civilians, pilots, stewardesses, cargo planes, all of the above, literally everything that gets up in the air, the airplanes, the choppers, you're going to gamble with the lives of all of those people to fulfill your own idiosyncratic conception of your woke DEI crap? Are, are you kidding me right now? Look, this is the logical end game, though. This is, has always been the logical end game of DEI, of critical theory, of this whole oppressor versus oppressed narrative, this whole, oh, we're going to put an overt, deliberate thumb on the scale in favor of the intersectional Olympics, where we're going to deliberately favor some people. And del- Look, the logical end game has always been meritocracy taking a back seat to leftist sub- subjectivity. The end game has always been excellence and merit taking a back seat to identity politics there's really no other way to frame it if you care about something as basic as prosaic as safety in the skies though my god i mean go get online right now and start filing your complaints to pete Buttigieg, who has been the absolute worst secretary of transportation in the thoroughly inglorious history of that not particularly sexy department I mean, he's overseen any number of scandals. Recall just in 2021 how he was taking months for paternity leave with that awful stuff. Go get online right now. Go to the FAA website and complain about this. If you value your own safety in the skies, if nothing else, Apple goes woke with an option to add pronouns to their iPhone contacts. So this is exactly what it sounds like. This is not the first instance of Apple going woke over the years. I mean, I'm old enough to remember it was maybe two, three years ago or so. They used to have this emoji in the Apple iOS operating system of an actual gun, of an actual handgun. 
And at some point, some wokester, I guess, complained about it, and they got rid of the handgun and put in a, a little squirt water gun in its place. You know, recall that Apple under CEO Tim Cook is the same company that has been operating in Xinjiang, China for much of the past decade, either directly or indirectly through Foxconn and their various other supply manufacturers. They are indirectly complicit in the genocide against the Uyghur Muslims there in in Western China, which, by the way, it seems like the whole world has forgotten about the plight of of the Uyghur Muslims. But Apple has been absolutely complicit in that via Foxconn and other indirect suppliers over the past decade or so. Apple, like any of the other big tech companies, is thoroughly, thoroughly in the bag for the forces of wokeism. There is no company worse out there than Google, but whether it is Google, Apple, Amazon, Meta, Facebook, Instagram, these companies subscribe to a singular hegemonic political ideology, and it is a direct result. It is a direct result of the milieu in which they live. They are all in a five to 10 square mile radius there in Silicon Valley. They are all recruiting from the exact same schools. They're all getting the same Stanford, Cal Berkeley PhDs. These people are liberals. These people are worse than liberals. They are leftists. They hate you. They hate their values, and they are going to shove their awful agenda down your throat for as long as you use their products. Absolute shame on Apple. NYU is willing to pay up to $275,000 for a professor with, quote, racism and inequality expertise. This is a job posting that we found from NYU's Silver School of Social Work. They're seeking a full-time professor who specializes in, I'm not making this up, quote, the well-being of historically marginalized groups. Those interested in applying for this position, according to NYU, should, quote, exhibit a commitment to social and economic justice and possess an ability to facilitate conversations concerning privilege oppressing and, and intersecting social identities. You, you, you really can't make this up. $275,000. That's a good amount of money. That is way, way, way north of median income in this country. That's probably pushing the 90, 95th percentile, if I had to guess, based on a rough estimate there, maybe even higher than that. All the talk about oppression and privilege, and oh, by the way, if that wasn't bad enough, as a necessary condition of applying for this job in the first place, you have to upload your DEI statement. Yes, NYU's Silver School of Social Work is making you bend the knee to the DEI regime and say that you fully abide by the dictates of the DEI woke catechism. You fully believe that whites, Christians, Asians, Jews, Mormons are all oppressors that are subjugating the oppressed classes. Going back to our FAA story, including apparently those with severe intellectual disabilities. NYU is making you sign on to that simply to get considered for this absolutely ridiculous $275,000 annually paying sinecure. Awful, awful stuff. Unfortunately, it is par for the course these days in higher education in America. Finally, shout out to our friends at KTTH Seattle. Jason Ranch, our friend there, has a story about a fat liberation convention. Yes, this is called FATCON. This is a fat conference in Seattle that is taking place. The keynote speakers include a sexologist and a burlex performer. And according to Jason, the programming includes sessions on how to, quote, make fat friends. Man, I mean, talk about just throwing in the towel. You know, once upon a time in this country, once upon a time in this world, if you were fat, if you were overweight, 
then you would get on a diet, you would get on a treadmill, and you would get in shape for your own health, for your own life expectancy, for your spouse, for your children, for your parents, for your loved ones, and also because it's just the right thing to do. Again, this is America and the Western world at large deliberately sacrificing merit, excellence, and objectivity, objective beauty, objective aesthetics, whether it's in clothing, whether it's in fat versus skinny, whether it's in architecture. We are constantly sacrificing objectivity to leftist subjectivity, and that leftist subjectivity, in turn, takes the form of the intersectional Olympics with the oppressed oppressors, crap, all that stuff we just talked about. It's awful, it's terrible, and America is already the fattest country in the Western world with utterly idiotic stuff like this. Unfortunately, I don't see that changing anytime soon.